At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that I was tasked with one of the most contentious texts in all of the Bible, certainly in our culture today. So we're going to dive in pretty deep today, and I hope you're ready for that. And that's just something I want you to understand about the Word of God itself. Here at Woodside Bible Church, we take, whether it's a book or several chapters, we work through them. Verse by verse, section by section. And so this just happens to be where we are today. And all of it speaks, all of it is relevant. This is extremely relevant to our culture today, and yet it's brought all kinds of confusion, this particular text and topic. And so we're just going to tackle it because we don't shy away from whatever it is that the Lord wants to speak to us about. And so although it might not seem like it might be fitting for this particular Sunday or whatever it might be, this is what God has for us, and I am convinced He wants us to leave this place changed, equipped, and empowered by the gospel for the sake of this community and our world today. So let me begin this way. This week I came across a great little book. It was entitled, God Made Boys and Girls Helping Children Understand the Gift of Gender. I loved it because, in my opinion, it helps kids understand from a biblical perspective one of the most significant and contentious topics in our current culture. I read this book yesterday with my 10-year-old. Over the past two decades, there have been countless articles, countless books, countless discussions on the subject of gender and gender stereotypes. Our culture has been passionately wrestling with important questions. The questions are significant and they matter. What does it mean to be a man? Again, this wasn't chosen simply because of the cultural moment. We're working through the word of God. Yet what does it mean to be a man? And how should men behave? What does it mean to be a woman? How should women behave? These questions show up everywhere from university classrooms to children's cartoons and everything in between. Older generations, maybe my parents' generation, might have answered these questions by saying that men should be like John Wayne and women should be like Barbie. And that was just the stereotype. Younger generations have found the whole John Wayne, or if you're a Gen Xer like me, whatever 90s icon you want to choose, Uh, And Barbie, those stereotypes to be far too narrow, even harmful. I sympathize with the critique, the criticism of those stereotypes is, in my opinion, deserved. So let's be honest, there is so much more to being a man or a woman than what we see from this old cowboy guy, you know, and Barbie. There's so much more, yet... This Barbie caricature and this John Wayne caricature and what it left in our culture, the residue in our culture, we all feel it and experience it and we see the culture reacting to it. The John Wayne image helped contribute to the rise of toxic masculinity. And the Barbie caricature only reinforced the negative impression that women care more about style and what's on the surface than substance. And that they shouldn't, if we follow this stereotype even further, be taken all that seriously. 
Here's the issue, though. As the culture deconstructed these unhelpful stereotypes and caricatures, it created an even bigger problem by abandoning any sense of gender norms. Just throwing them all out the window. We have created an androgynous society, meaning there is no real gender. Where the, the, the culture sees no difference or uniqueness between men and women and treats us all like we're all just interchangeable parts. And this has left millions, millions and millions, especially children, horribly confused. And what it means to be a boy or girl or a man or woman is more confused today than in any other generation. Do you see this today in our culture? I hope you can at least sympathize with what I'm saying. So where should we look for solid answers to important questions? Where, where should we go? Our, our search for truth always must lead us to God's word. It always must lead us to the authority of God's word. The Bible, if you're not familiar with the biblical claims or the Christian claims, the Bible is both timeless and timely. It's true forever, and it's true for right now. It is both right and relevant. It's not archaic. It's not some antiquated document that has no application to our society today. If the truth is, uh, is seen and understood and read and interpreted properly within the context of the words themselves and then given to the world today, it has every bit of the weight of God's authoritative power. And it can transform lives. Our whole eternity is based on its truth. Now, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy in this series that we've called Church. Why bother? Because Paul is writing to one of his uh, pupils, Timothy, who was leading a church called Ephesus. That's in modern-day Turkey, the west part of the country. A very significant city in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. And one of the purposes of the spiritual community built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that we call the church, is that the church is meant in community to dive into God's word and provide us with clarity to life's biggest questions. That's why in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul actually writes to Timothy saying that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, you can look elsewhere. People have since the garden, since Genesis 3, since the very first human beings fell into sin, human beings have been looking in other places for truth. I'm rejecting God's truth, and I'm going to try to find it in some other environment, some other place. So they go looking for truth in those places, but it won't lead you to actual truth. It will lead you to your truth. People talk about my truth. They talk about our truth, our own way, but it won't lead you to actual truth. It's just deception wrapped up in moral sentimentalism. Here's what I find so often. If we're talking about uh, perhaps the Christian stereotype or the church in our culture of people who claim faith in Jesus, people who might recognize that our instincts aren't always right and I need some authority beyond myself, beyond time even, to speak into this experience that we call life. 
And so they understand and they would say, I believe in the Bible. I believe in the Bible's authority. I believe in everything that's in here. I believe that what this is is actually God's word for my life, for our culture. But then what happens is although they say this is God's authority and they're submitted to God's authority, they then interpret God's word based on their own assumptions and their own beliefs. And so they've actually placed the Bible under their authority. That's what people do all the time. Well, I take this to mean that, and I take this to mean this. Whatever it might be, it's confusion of actually what it is that God is saying. Yet that's not the nature of Scripture. Scripture is true, and if we seek after what God was saying to the community to which it was written, and then properly understand it through some simple biblical interpretive principles for what it means today, then we can come to a proper understanding of what God is saying. He's not trying to hide his truth from us. He's asking us to discover it as we seek his word in the context of community that's submitted to him. So Paul is writing to Timothy to train him so that he's prepared to help his church know the difference between truth and error. And to live lives in a manner that honors God. So our faith in Jesus is not just some intellectual thing. It's meant to obviously impact how we behave. Now chapter 2, it opens up with instructions for the church. Uh, The first seven verses are focused on prayer. They're marked by prayer. And it means embracing the gospel means giving up our self-reliance and communicating our dependency upon God in prayer. And how we pray actually reveals how much we understand about the gospel. Now, Paul moves from prayer in these verses to conduct, specifically the behavior of men and women who profess faith in Christ. And the picture of this gospel-centered life, this gospel-formed life he paints, completely shatters worldly views on gender, and it reshapes gender stereotypes. When we properly understand these verses, They invite us to reject the false teachers of our culture on the topic of how men and women should behave and give us God's holy and empowering perspective. That's our main idea today, that Christian men and women should be known for their gospel-centered behavior, and we must reject cultural stereotypes. Paul makes it clear that the way we behave as followers of Jesus should point people to Christ And it should be radically different than the secular stereotypes that often just plague men and women in our society. So the question he takes up is, what should Christian men and women be known for? Uh, His first uh, instruction is for the men. He says, men, men should be known for their spiritual passion. Look at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the first thing Paul dismantles is the cultural stereotype that men are so often known for. In Ephesus, men were known for their anger, for their aggression, for their arguments. Remember, this was a society built on Greek philosophy. And so the philosophers of the day, they would argue about who had the greater argument. They do so sometimes violently, certainly passionately, to try to belittle the other leaders, the other philosophers, and build up their own name and reputation. And so that's where they received power. That's where they received fame. That's how they received, in many ways, even monetary gain. And so the specific word that Paul uses for anger, it means violent 
emotions that come as a result of unholy passions. No church with men who were known for their anger and quarreling would be able to survive, yet alone thrive, if they were filled with leaders like this. Anger and unholy passions only lead to division and infighting and a fractured church. I've seen it a hundred times, perhaps you have too. Men who are getting into contentious issues and fights with one another that are not displaying the, the posture of the gospel. They're just trying to puff out their chests and try to figure out who the bigger man is. And all the while, they're running away from the reality of the gospel and what Jesus instructed for our lives. This is exactly what James says in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, the issues haven't changed. Far too many men today have bought into the lie that the only emotions we're really allowed to feel are those of aggression and lust. That's pretty much how the culture communicates it. The culture says men are basically like animals following our unholy appetites no matter where they lead. Our culture rewards competitiveness and hypersexuality, and all of this produces a society that conditions men towards disunity, violence, covenant breaking, and the exploitation of women. Basically, this message that, hey, you can't help it, you're just a man, whatever you feel, what's ever on the front of your mind, whatever appetite, ambition, or approval that you're looking for in other people, just go chase it, just go get it, you can't help yourself, that's just the way you are, that you have no self-control. Yet Paul says, now that the gospel has come to you, you are to be known instead for your spiritual passion. Be men whose desires are submitted to God. Instead of anger, be known for your holiness. That's why it says lifting up your hands in holy prayer, holy hands in prayer, saying that when we pray, our hands are full of the holiness of Christ. And so when we come before God in desperation, we're coming to, before him with a life that is expressing his truth in his way. There are all kinds of things that men can be known for today that will lead to temporary pleasure, fame, fortune. Proverbs 14 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its, its end is the way of death. So getting all the world's approval, chasing after that, just making sure that others are believing the right things about you, all that approval, that is nothing but fool's gold. Fulfilling all your appetites, chasing whatever urge you need, whether it's food or sexual in nature, whatever it might be, that is nothing but fool's gold. Accomplishing every earthly ambition you set your mind to, it's nothing but fool's gold. I watched this show on the History Channel. It's called The Curse of Oak Island. Anybody ever seen The Curse of Oak Island on the History Channel? Like five of you, four of you. Okay, now 10 of you. Okay, you're, you're coming alive a little bit. Basically, there's two brothers. They're from Michigan, by the way, so we should watch it. Support our, our state statesmen, whatever they are. They, they've, got, they've got fancy wineries up in the Traverse City area. But it's these two brothers with wineries and a bunch of money, but they're trying to solve a 200-year-old mystery by finding buried treasure on this tiny little island in Nova, in Nova Scotia. There's been over 170 episodes 170 episodes since it launched 
in 2014. And every single week, they have this commentator that gives like dialogue to the show. So whenever they're doing some scientific study or drilling through the ground or trying to find whatever they're trying to find, some guy comes in and shares with you what, what they're doing. And every single week, he says the same thing. He says, will this be the clue that unlocks the mystery so they can finally solve the, solve the, the puzzle and figure out where the, girl, uh, the gold is? Is this, is this finally going to allow them to find the buried treasure and do all the things? And he says the same thing every single week. But you know what they've never found? I mean, they, they found old ship wharfs, they show pieces of leather, they found this old cross that looks like something out of Indiana Jones, like they, they, they find pottery and coins and sometimes some buttons and some nails, they find a lot of wood from, from underground tunnels, you're wondering what the tunnels are doing 100 feet down under the ground, but they're there, they're finding wood, they're finding all this stuff. But not once in all of their searching and digging and chasing has it actually brought them real gold. They keep thinking they're getting closer, that they'll get the treasure, but, but it's, like, it's like a vapor. It's so frustrating to watch it. I think it's why we still do is because you keep thinking, but, but you go to grasp it and there's nothing there. There's just nothing there. It's just another well being brought up with some dirt, a few splinters. If we truly want to find what Jesus calls real treasure and experience real life, eternal life, abundant life, we must become men whose hearts are shaped by God's word and the spirit. That's the real treasure. Men who are known for their spiritual passion. Men focused on a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. Men who live for Christ, not for themselves. Not men who are chasing after all this fool's gold only to come up empty over and over and keep thinking that they're going to get it when all the while Jesus is offering the real treasure to you. Will you give up the chase? Will you choose his way? Will you choose to be passionate about the things of God through prayer, lifting up holy hands. This is Paul's encouragement to all the men within the church. What should Christian men and women be known for? Men should be known for their spiritual passion. Then he turns his attention to the women of Ephesus. He says women should be known for their gospel substance. And these verses, I'm sharing it with you, are some of the most debated and difficult to understand in the New Testament scriptures. But let me read them. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world does that all mean? First, we need to recognize that these verses have been, as I mentioned, studied and debated for centuries. But there's two things that we need to keep in mind. One is Timothy's context, writing to this particular city in Ephesus, this church in Ephesus. The second is the overall theme of the gospel that we have throughout the scriptures. 
So he starts with likewise. He's saying in the same way men are called to reject the cultural stereotypes and embrace the way of Christ, women are called to do the exact same thing. The women in the church are called to reject the shallow and fading beauty of what's on the outside and the stereotype of Ephesian women that their passion was for fine clothes, hairstyles, and expensive jewelry. And and, and now Paul is not saying to the women here that uh, under Timothy's spiritual leadership, they should take a vow of poverty. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying they should invest their energy into working hard and despise their physical beauty. That's not it either. He's simply telling them that they should be known for more than their external appearance. Because they have accepted the gospel of Christ, they are to be known as women of deep, rich gospel substance. These Christian women are not shallow. They are not all charm and no character. Rather, they are to be known for the things like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So how do the women of Ephesus or Christian women more broadly become known as women of gospel substance? Verse 11 gives us the answer to that all-important question. How can they be known as women of gospel substance? They must learn. It's a very simple answer, actually. The implication is that she is a disciple of Christ who is committed to learning the scriptures in order to properly understand the gospel, understand it well enough to apply it to her own life and apply it and teach it to others as well. Now, Paul wants these women to progress to their maximum potential in the knowledge of God so in turn, each of them might also maximize her good works for God. This is the call of discipleship. So when Matthew says, go into all the world and make disciples, there's no other differentiator given. Just make disciples, he says, of all nations. That's all of humanity. And disciple, it literally means a learner. So a disciple is someone who is learning to be like Jesus in who they are, their character, and how they live, their competencies with other human beings. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so this is the call that Paul is giving to the women within the church. So next, Paul talks about what type of attitude and disposition a woman should have as she's learning to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. She should have an attitude of quietness and all submissiveness to those who have spiritual authority in her life. Now, we'll get to this somewhat next week, but there's one specific office within the church that's described. It comes in chapter 3 that's given spiritual authority for the condition or the care of the church family. It's called the office of an overseer or elder. And what we'll find is there's a synonymous term called pastor. All three terms are used interchangeably. It's three terms for one role. And the elders of the church then, and her husband if she's married, have this equal serious responsibility. Their responsibility to teach her in the word. Now, Paul is not saying, he's not at all saying the things that have been said far too often or the application that has been made far too often within the church, which is basically women, shut up. That's not what he's saying. That's not here. That's an abuse of the meaning of verse 11. Paul is saying something pretty simple. He's actually, he's not saying they're never allowed to speak. He's saying have a peaceful and gentle attitude as you learn which is basically just a simple principle of how we all ought to learn. 
It's hard for us to grasp how radically countercultural the words of verse 11 were to women who lived in the first century. In that culture, women were typically not permitted to pursue any type of formal education. Uh, and they weren't invited to the table of discipleship either. So notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is boldly declaring that Christianity has no place for misogyny. That's what he's saying. He is simply carrying on the practices of Jesus who demolished the cultural barrier of misogyny. I'll just take you to one story. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house. And it says that Mary, not his mom, a disciple of his, Mary, it says she is sitting with the disciples. Now, women in that first century Jewish culture would not typically sit with the disciples at that table of fellowship to learn from the rabbi. The rabbi was the one in authority. He was teaching what was called his Talmudim or his disciples, and the men would sit there. Well, Mary's sitting with the disciples, learning the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, and what he is claiming about himself. Meanwhile, her sister, Martha, is doing what typical women in the culture would do. She's serving everybody else. She's not learning. She's not listening. She's serving. So Martha comes to Jesus and says, hey, cultural norm, she's sitting here with those guys. She should be helping me over here serving. So she complains to Jesus that Mary's not helping out. What does Jesus say? He breaks down every stereotype within that culture, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What did he just do? He says men and women are equally meant to sit at the feet of Christ and learn the good news. That's what he's doing. He's saying men and women should equally learn the gospel, the truth of God's word. Jesus set the example. He wanted men and women in the same place of learning. He invites women into the exact same process of discipleship and expected their lives to produce fruit just as he did the men. So in verse 12, what happens next? Paul anticipates and dismisses the idea that since women are being empowered in a way that no one else is empowering them within the culture, then this is going to lead to a different abuse. It's swinging the pendulum too far the other way. So he addresses it. And he gives this, this charge. So he says, use your spiritual gifts, learn the gospel, and then he's, he's, he's setting it up so that he's not, he's letting his audience know he's not setting up some kind of hyper-feminist movement. When he gives this prohibition, Paul is boldly declaring that Christianity is neither misogynistic, honoring men at the expense of women, nor is it feministic, honoring women at the expense of men. So, while the Bible clearly affirms that men and women are biologically different, they are to be honored equally. Now, in Ephesus, you have to understand a few things about the city. Sometimes, uh, women were actually viewed in that cultural context as superior because they were the ones who let out what was called the cult, or the cult really, but the temple of Diana. Right in every Roman city was a giant temple, and that temple was its primary deity. So everybody within the city would offer sacrifice to that particular deity. Well, in this city, it was the Temple of Diana, or the Greek name is Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt and the goddess and protector of childbirth. 
For when a child was brought into the world for the protection of the mother and the protection of the child to reach adolescence. Now, because of that, if you knew anything about the temple in Ephesus, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It took like over 100 years to build. It's completely made out of marble. It was led by women. And because of all the worship of women that was happening in the city, sometimes femininity reigned supreme. Paul is giving the corrective, saying, no, that's not it either. Again, there's equal contribution that he's addressing here. And so what, what is Paul then restricting in verse 12? He's not prohibiting women from all forms of teaching or exercising authority over men in the church. In the very next chapter, he talks about the role of this overseer or elder, and he's saying that that specific role is meant to be filled by qualified men. And we'll see next week, we'll dive into that role a little bit further in terms of its qualifications. But the, the, the context here is Paul giving Timothy instructions for the worship gathering. So we'll also see next week that part of the function of the elder and the overseer, the pastor, is to communicate and teach the word of God when the church is formally gathered together. So the implication is that elders are meant to lead the teaching of God's word when the church is gathered. The early church did not have kids ministry and student ministry and life groups and Bible studies and all these other places. That, that's not what he's addressing. He's addressing when the church comes together formally. So the only application, all that teaching to say, the only application we can be confident about is that men are meant to serve as overseers, elders, and pastors, and they are meant to lead out the teaching of God's word when the church is all gathered together, which for us is on our weekend services. In every space, every other place, every gift from all men and all women should be exercised for the sake of the kingdom. Now, the pastor-elder plays a primary role in the discipleship of men and women of the church and the gospel so that they can grow in gospel substance and they can also teach the word of God in the other contexts. So verses 13 and 14, then as we walk through this, need to be read in light of 11. The reason why women must learn and it says have a deep understanding of the gospel is to avoid, it says, deception. Some people again abuse the text and they say, well, does this mean that Eve had some kind of moral incapacity that Adam did not have, that's, or, or some intellectual issue that Adam did not have. That's not it at all. Again, to state such things is completely outside the bounds of Scripture. Think about it. What he's saying is that Adam received direct instruction from God, right? He received instruction from God. Eve was meant to receive that instruction from Adam, her husband. Eve did not receive that instruction from Adam, her husband, and so she was then vulnerable to the deception of the enemy because she was not taught as he was taught and because she was not taught she was vulnerable so what is paul saying he's saying teach men and women alike so that neither are vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy that's what he's saying that's what he's after that's the deception he's talking about now over christmas break i think about this in our world there was a headline that came out that said the Taliban bans women and girls from attending universities in Afghanistan. There was a CBS article that explained that the education minister for the Afghan government issued a legal prohibition that would forcibly remove women currently enrolled in any classes in any college or university in Afghanistan and prohibit any future opportunity for higher learning effective immediately. What does the gospel have to say about this? 
I am convinced that it is our responsibility as Christians to demonstrate the contrast between headlines like this one and the gospel itself. Because the truth is the gospel is good news for all. It's good news for all men. It's good news for all women. It's good news for all children. The gospel is what ultimately brings human thriving. The gospel is what ultimately builds up a healthy church. And so the Apostle Paul invites women to reject the cultural stereotypes that they were all beauty and no brains, all style and no substance. Christian women are to be known for their gospel substance. And lastly, as we work towards the end of this text, what's verse 15 about? Just a, a couple minutes and, the, and then we'll close. Verse 15 then, when it's talking about childbearing and being saved through childbearing, remember this. Remember what I just said. Artemis and Diana, this goddess in Ephesus, people would offer her worship and that was supposed to protect your children and you. From what? From death. So the greatest fear was that during those times, you would lose your life or your child's life through childbearing. Why, why, that in our ears, it sounds weird because we don't connect those two together, death and childbearing, very much. In the first century, 50% of babies never made it to toddlers. 25% died within the first year. 25% died before they ever made it to their toddler years. That was the reality, one out of two. So if you're a mother giving birth, it was dangerous. For your children, it was dangerous. They did not have medical advancements like we have today. So they would offer worship to Diana and sacrifice so that they would be protected. What Paul is saying is even death through childbirth cannot overwhelm your soul. You are saved by grace. So salvation is stronger than death. That's what he was saying. Salvation is stronger than death for every woman here. Salvation is stronger than death for every man here. That's what he was communicating. So what does all this mean? Women, as you grow as a disciple, as you grow in your understanding of the gospel, know that nothing can keep you from the love of Christ built on your faith. All these false identities that are given to men and women in our culture, we should be known for our gospel-centered behavior. We must reject these things in love, in grace. So if you want to know what it truly means to be a man or a woman, I invite you today to turn from the idols of our culture, turn from what they state about who we are, and in faith, turn to the good news of Christ. If you've received it, embrace it deeper. If you have not received it, it's yours freely today. As we close in worship, there will be men and women up front after the song to say, I'm here to pray, I'm here to chat, I'm here to talk, I'm here to help. They're always present and available for you after every worship service. So that's available to each of you this morning as well. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day and for your word. There's a lot to unpack here, Lord. There's so much to talk through. And it's so incredibly important for our world today. So, Father, as we embrace who we are in Christ, as we overcome those places where all of us have been influenced by the culture around us, embracing things that aren't consistent with your good news, sometimes the message oppresses one group and lifts up another or vice versa. 
And yet, Father, in your beautiful creation, and through the life of your Son, you've invited all to sit at your feet, to learn, to grow, and to experience real, abundant life. So for everyone here confused, perhaps, about what it means to be who you've created them to be, I pray that they would find their answer in you, that they are beautifully and wonderfully made. That, Father, that you have knit them together in their mother's womb and you have set them apart and chosen them from the foundation of your world, that you've given them your spirit, that you've prepared in advance good works for them to do because they are your perfect workmanship. Father, as we build one another up and build up this body called the church, your spiritual family, we need healing. We need it personally, and then we need to take it out of this place into our church, into our life groups, into our ministries, into our neighborhoods, into our world. So, Father, as we respond today in song, I pray that the song would be more than just words. It would be a prayer. May it be our response of worshipful prayer, lifting up holy hands, saying, heal us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's respond? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.